following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're continuing on in our Ecclesiastes series that I've entitled Life Under the Sun. And this is part two of a two-part message. If you've been here at ICC at all, you know that more than a few times I tend to split messages in half. And so that's uh, what I've done once again here. And so uh, we're looking at part two of this passage in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10 to 7, verse 12. And so if you have your Bibles, we'd invite you to turn there. Otherwise, you can see the verses here on the screen. And it reads, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is the house of mourning, uh, is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to the instruction and the ministry of your word given to us through the work of your Holy Spirit. And so grant to us a teachable heart, a heart that hungers and longs for your truth, that we would apply it into our lives. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So as I mentioned in the brief intro, this is part two of a message that I began last Sunday. Uh, Last week we looked at the first seven verses of this passage, and we saw that it focused primarily on death and suffering. I think one of the things we could all acknowledge is that by nature, we're all pain avoiders. It's a survival strategy, isn't it? It, It's it's instinct. It's basically our attempt to get through a really dangerous world as unscathed as possible. Uh, So we avoid pain at all costs whenever we have the opportunity to. Not only that, but none of us like to dwell on death much either. We all know that we have to face it one day, but we do our best to distract ourselves from the reality of death as much as possible. 
But the preacher points out that by, in essence, trying to anesthetize ourselves from pain and death, we end up in the end losing something vital in the search for the meaningful life. In other words, there is more wisdom, the preacher says, by attending one funeral than there is attending a hundred parties. Parties are great, they're enjoyable, but they don't really teach you much. But when you go to a funeral, it forces you to think about what the purpose of life is. It seems pretty morbid to reflect on death and dying, the brevity of life. But the preacher says by doing so, it helps you to come to terms with what's really important in life. What am I really living for? As C.S. Lewis said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Saying, if you really want to know, in other words, how to live in this world, you got to have your eyes focused on the next life and think about what lasts in an eternal perspective. He also went on in those first seven verses to talk about how basically trials will help us to gain more wisdom than times of happiness and celebration. And I think all of us could acknowledge that, can't we? That often the deepest, most important lessons that we've learned in life happened during times of suffering, during times of difficulty. On the other hand, though, simply going through trials doesn't guarantee that you're going to grow or learn necessarily. Just because you've experienced the death of a loved one or have experienced pain in your life. We took a look at that in that passage in Acts, right? When Paul was on the Damascus road getting ready to persecute more Christians and Jesus confronted him on that road and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Jesus said to Paul, it's tough to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? Isn't it, Saul? In essence, what Jesus was saying to him was, we talked about the goad was basically a sharp stick used to prod animals to get them to go where you wanted them to go. But sometimes animals are stubborn, and they don't want to go where you tell them to go. So they kick against the goad. But when you kick against the goad, you end up cutting yourself only further. It just causes more pain in your life. And in essence, what the Bible says is you can live your life like that too. Sometimes God introduces trials into your life to teach you something deep. But instead of learning that lesson, instead of submitting to what God is teaching you, you can kick against it, to fight against that lesson that God is teaching you. And it ends up only causing you more pain. And so the wise person uses life's challenges as an opportunity to grow. As I mentioned last message, it looks like these verses are only a random string of wisdom sayings that have nothing related to one another. But when you look more closely at them, you realize that they're tied together by the common theme of the challenges that we all encounter living this life. And he impacts this theme by making a series of these contrasts. And the contrasts are typically between one thing that we would instinctively avoid in life and another thing that we are more drawn to, that's more pleasant. But what he says is that that thing that you instinctively avoid, like pain and death 
and suffering, these things may actually hold out greater promise to help you to grow spiritually and to become the person that God wills you to be than often these more pleasant, attractive things that we're drawn to. We began the exploration by looking at pain and death. And now in verse 5 through 6, the preacher shifts his focus to another unpleasant experience that, frankly, I think all of us would prefer to avoid if we could, and that's receiving, the rebuke, from an, re- receiving rebuke from another person. In verses 5 to 6, it says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. The preacher makes an argument that as difficult as it may be, rebuke actually ought to be viewed as a gift that we ought to welcome in our life. He contrasts this idea of receiving rebuke from what he calls the song of fools. And then he later compares the laughter of fools with this sound of thorns cracking over a a pot. The truth is that none of us like to be told what's wrong with us, do we? I mean, I know I don't like it. Do you like it? And these are difficult conversations to have with anyone. And so the contrast that the preacher is making here is you can either fight that fight of struggling in this issue of correcting somebody and being involved in rebuke, or you could sort of choose the path of least resistance. And instead of going down that road, just have a good time with people. You know, just don't even go there. You know, let's just, let's just forget about it and let's just have a good time. That's what he's saying when he's talking about this song of fools or this laughter of fools. The imagery, I think, is really interesting. He compares it to the sound that thorns make when they're in a fire. Um, as Americans, it's hard for us to understand the picture that's being painted for us. But anybody that lives in a traditional society would immediately understand why he's talking about burning thorns. And the reason is because nobody burns thorn branches to make for firewood, in essence, to make a fire for cooking. Why? Because thorn branches burn out as fast as they ignite. Um, I I learned this the hard way when I was on a mission trip to Africa as a college student. We were out in the bush in the middle of nowhere, and it was was a very surreal experience. We were in this just this road in the middle of nowhere in Africa, and we were told by the host missionary to wait here because a bus would pick us up. (laughs) I was like, you got to be kidding me, man. No buses. We hadn't seen a vehicle drive by in like an hour. But we were waiting there, and you typically associate Africa with very hot weather, but it was freezing cold that morning, and all of us just had t-shirts, short-sleeved t-shirts on, so we were literally shivering, freezing to death, waiting for this bus that by faith was going to come somehow in the middle of nowhere. And so in order to stay warm, um, what I had as the team leader, I had all the team members gather these these thorn branches that were all over, kind of dead ones that were dried out. And we made this enormous pile of thorns. 
and we lit it on fire to, to warm up. And this thing almost exploded in this ginormous bonfire, and the warmth, the heat that radiated was unbelievably comforting, and it was popping and cracking just like it's talking about here. And then in about two minutes, it was gone, and we were shivering again. And then these Maasai shepherds were staring at us laughing because I think they were like, these guys are you know, fools, you know? They're trying to stay warm using thorns. In the same way, what Solomon seems to be saying is, you know, you can avoid difficult conversations with laughter and entertainment. And that kind of escapism is useless. It's as useless as a fire made from thorns. A fire made from thorns doesn't do anything. It just makes a lot of noise, it's very dramatic, and the next instant it's gone, and it hasn't accomplished anything. It's, it's important to recognize that the preacher is not saying having a good time with friends in and of itself is some kind of evil. He's not saying that. Remember, as we said, it's these comparisons that he's making throughout. This compared to that, and he says, but when you use that kind of entertainment, that kind of empty entertainment as a substitute, as even a diversion, as an avoidance measure to not deal with some of the more difficult conversations that need to happen in your life, then that's useless. It's meaningless. It's like a bonfire of thorns. I found this issue of rebuke to probably be one of the most difficult aspects of pastoral ministry, personally. I think everyone is glad to have a pastor when you need someone to come to a bedside in a hospital and offer prayers, or when you need someone to officiate your wedding. That's, you know, my pastor, you know? Um, but I repeatedly find myself in situations as a pastor where I need to confront people also. And deal with issues that are not as pleasant. A wife wants me to fix her husband, but in the course of the marital counseling, it becomes clear that she is contributing as much to the wreckage of their marriage as he is. And I'm supposed to be her advocate. And she doesn't want to hear anything from me about her issues. A parent wants me to set their wayward child straight, but it turns out talking to the child that the parents are a big reason why this kid has gone wayward. And again, a difficult conversation with those parents. No matter how many of these difficult conversations I've had over the years, they never get any easier. I usually walk into these conversations bracing myself for confrontation and resistance and argumentation, and I'm rarely disappointed. And in saying these things, I have to acknowledge my own struggles receiving rebuke. Now, as a pastor so close to God, I, I don't rarely struggle with these things. But, you know, in those rare moments where someone does have to correct me, uh, I'm very familiar with the sensations I experience when someone is telling me something about myself that I don't want to hear, frankly. You know the feeling, right? The heart pounding under your chest, the warm flush coming over your cheeks, the pit in your stomach, the dry mouth when you try to speak, sometimes even the, the sense of near panic that you just want to run away as the fight-or-flight mechanism kicks in just because you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to deal with what someone is trying to tell you 
about yourself. And it's not just the physical sensations. It's the mind that starts racing, putting up walls of defense, mounting countermeasures and counterattacks to fend off this unwanted attack on who you are. Rebuke is never easy to give or to receive. And so frankly, I think for most of us, we would just rather not go there. Life is easier, it's cleaner when I don't ever go there with people. But in doing so, I think we lose something vital in our spiritual journey. In addressing this issue of rebuke, Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek, right next to us, talks about what he calls having the courage to talk about the last 10%. And what he means by this is this. When you're addressing a difficulty that you're having with somebody, usually it's not very hard to cover the first 90%. Because this is all stuff that it's, it's almost sort of known before you even go there, right? It's, it's sort of assumed that this is what you're going to talk about when you're trying to deal with a conflict that you have with somebody. But then you get to that most difficult, most sensitive, and yet arguably the most important stuff that has to be said, what Hybels calls the last 10%. And that's when you're most likely to shrink back. And you don't have the courage to say that last 10% to someone. In other words, it's that moment when truth is needed the most. When you have to really say the elephant in the room, you know, brother, this is what you really need to hear today. You got to hear this. It's precisely at that last 10% moment that we shrink back and that we don't have the courage to speak. Instead, we just get very vague and fuzzy with our language, right? We start talking around in circles. And say, well, yeah, you know, no one's perfect and we're all trying, so like, can we all just get along and let's just pray and let's go, you know? It's like that, that kind of conclusion to the conversation. Let me tell you this. Every one of us in this room has that last 10% about our character. And it's precisely that last 10% that people are more likely to talk about you behind your back than to your face. It's also the part of you that you are most likely blind to, that you don't even realize you're like that. That last 10% is also most likely the part that's hurting you the most and hurting the relationships in your life. But it's also the part of you that is least likely to ever be revealed to you because very few people will ever have the courage to say it to your face, these things that you need to hear. And what I want to argue is that we need the love and courage to speak the last 10% to one another. And the truth is I think we often justify withholding that last 10% out of concern of hurting somebody's feelings. And there's some legitimacy to that argument, but I think in truth, often the reason is more out of fear. You know, we don't want them to be mad, with, mad at us. We want them to like us. And so we would rather just keep quiet, really for our own sakes, not for theirs.
But I would argue this, if we really are going to grow spiritually, both individually as well as as a church family, we need to create a culture where these kind of difficult conversations can happen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Now, speaking that last 10% is not about mercilessly ripping into somebody, okay? Well, I'll give you the last 10%. I'll give you the last 20% if you really want it. Or just angrily venting all of your frustrations on them. That's not what I mean by sharing that last 10% with someone. As Ephesians 4.15 makes clear, it's got to come from a place of love. And so before you ever say that last 10%, you've really got to examine your own motives. Am I really correcting this person out of genuine care for them? Or is it because I just want to give them a piece of my mind and I'm so frustrated with dealing with it? But having examined our motives and knowing that we can come from that place of love, we need the courage to speak. And out of that concern, to realize that sometimes in order to help somebody I love, I have to hurt them. Sometimes that pain has to come before the healing can really happen. Proverbs 27 Verse 5 to 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I'm telling you this right now. The vast majority of people in your life will never care enough about you to tell you the things that you really need to hear in your life. But will you find the true friend, the true person that actually loves you enough to be willing to risk their relationship with you, to say the things you really need to hear in your life. The proverb points out true love comes from a person willing to hurt you in order to ultimately help you, rather than just keeping silent out of cowardice and to preserve yourself. But then we turn to the other aspect of rebuke. How open are you to hearing the last 10% about yourself? That's the question, isn't it? Do you have anybody in your life that you trust enough, that cares about you enough, that can tell the things that you need to hear in your life? And the question is, how is your heart in receiving that kind of a word from somebody. Psalm 141, verse 5 says this, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. You see, this is the attitude of humility that must come when we invite correction in our lives. And this is the truth. Whether you realize it or not, all of us are sending subtle signals to the people in our lives as to whether we're truly open to hearing that last 10% from someone. And if others don't really sense that openness or brokenness in you, then the truth is 
you will never hear that last 10% from anyone in your life. You know, it's like, come on, tell me, I can handle it. They're like, no, we're good. I'd rather not go there. The truth is, I don't think any of us could model this in our own strength. It just feels way too risky without God's grace that enables us to be like this. Dallas Willard says something interesting. This is a quote that we looked at just last weekend with our community group leaders out of his book, Renovation of the Heart. In the early stages of spiritual development, we could not endure seeing our inner life as it really is. The possibility of denial and self-deception is something God has made accessible to us in part to protect us until we begin to seek Him. Like the face of the mythical Medusa, our true condition away from God would turn us to stone if we ever fully confronted it. It would drive us mad. He has to help us come to terms with it in ways that will not destroy us outright. In other words, what Willard is saying is, is when all of us start our spiritual journey, there is this spiritual blindness. None of us really see ourselves as we truly are. We all have this inflated ego, this inflated view of ourselves in which we overestimate our good qualities and dramatically underestimate our bad qualities. But in a way, God says, that's his, what Willard says, that that's God's grace to us. Because if we could actually see ourselves warts and all as we truly are, says none of us would be able to survive that vision of ourselves. I mean, we'd all be so profoundly depressed, we'd probably all want to commit suicide. So in that way, it says that Willard is saying that God protects us like that with this spiritual blindness. But as we come to Jesus, that veil starts to get lifted more and more as through the work of the Holy Spirit, He reveals our sin and helps us to understand our weaknesses and our flaws. But that revelation comes with grace so that that grace enables me to confront honestly the sin that is in my life. And where without Jesus, I would never be willing to go there. I could never be that vulnerable. Now, because Christ has paid my debt, and because Jesus, through him, my sins are forgiven, I am free. I have nothing to be afraid of. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I am not defined by my weaknesses and limitations. I am defined by God's love for me, of being his child. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the gospel, I am now set free to say, listen, this is who I am by the grace of God, with all of my weaknesses, and I have nothing to hide because I have nothing to be ashamed of because I am just a sinner saved by grace. This quote that I've showed numerous times from Tim Keller, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, this is the truth about Jesus. Jesus, as your friend, loves you enough to hurt you and tell you the truth about you. That's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is God's willingness 
to tell you the last 10% about who you are as a sinner. And yet, in that same love, he does not leave us there in despair. But even in revealing who we are, he gives us hope through the gospel. I swear, every single year you will hear this quote from me, from Becky Pipper, because this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. But it so, to me, captures the gospel. One of the most wonderful implications of the cross is that it frees us from the pretense of innocence. We live in a world that is absolutely terrified of being discovered as being inadequate. You know, for all our bravado and boast, the great secret about human beings is that we're so alike. We're all so afraid that we're inadequate. One of the wonderful things about the cross is that it frees us to own up to our badness and to not live in despair over it. Integrity does not mean that we act as though we don't have a problem. Integrity means we refuse to deny that we have a problem. We must abandon our lust for innocence. We must abandon our lust for innocence that is man-centered, that somehow puts a facade of righteousness to cover the junk that is underneath. When we truly understand the gospel, we can own up to our weaknesses and our failures without being devastated by them because we realize that God has delivered us from them all. Our worth is not rooted in our accomplishments, but in what Jesus has accomplished for us. And it is only when I truly believe these truths that I am set free from that constant pressure to prove myself and hide all my weaknesses. And when I'm in that frame of mind, I will not let anybody rebuke me. The second I sense you going there, I will bristle. I will fight back. I will defend myself. I will lawyer up. And I will attack back and say, who are you to throw stones in your own glass house? But when I truly understand the gospel, I can open my heart to the rebuke given to me from love of a brother or sister in Christ who wants to correct me, imperfect as he or she may be. And I just want to challenge you and invite you to consider that in your life. How open are you to hearing that voice of rebuke in your life, that word of correction, particularly as it applies to that last 10%, that part that is in you that you may not even know is in you, but other people see it. They know it because they see it all the time. And to simply pray, God, may I so believe the gospel that I don't have to feel crushed by even the prospect of that voice coming into my life. The preacher goes on, verses 7 to 10, and he says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than, in the, than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now again, I, I challenge you. Doesn't this look like an utterly random list of thoughts? Is there anything that connects them? Well, I would argue yes. Uh, I think there is a picture that emerges in these verses. These verses seem to be talking about negative and unhelpful ways 
that we tend to act when things are not going the way we want them to go. You know, in other words, when things don't go our way, we tend to behave in certain ways that are very destructive. And I think that's what ties these verses together. First, the preacher begins by saying, we live in a world that is filled with all kinds of injustices and corruption and evil. And all of this is enough to drive any person crazy with bitterness and frustration. But as verse 8 points out, things aren't always as they appear on the surface. So that God has a way of redeeming what even appears to be hopeless situations. That's what the preacher means when he says the end of something is often better than the beginning. Meaning, don't be so quick to make a judgment about something, thinking you know how it's going to turn out. The danger is that rather than being patient with the final outcome of a situation, we often make summary judgments in the moment, and as, as a result of that judgment, we end up making a lot of rash and destructive decisions and hurt the situation even further. As the preacher points out, that is a heart of arrogance that presumes that we have all the information needed to make that judgment. In other words, we're standing in the place of God and saying, I know exactly what this is, and then it causes us to act a certain way. That's a spirit of pride rather than a heart of patience to say, you know what? I don't like what I'm seeing here, but this isn't the end of the story. I don't really know how all of this is going to turn out. So let me just be patient. One of the destructive reactions that we often have to situations we don't like is anger. And I think this brings an interesting perspective to anger. We often lash out with anger when we feel that there is nothing redeemable about a situation. In this way, our anger is an act of aggression that we try to use to change a situation that we don't like. I don't like what I'm seeing here. I don't like what's going on, and so we become angry, in essence, to try to manipulate people, to basically get them to do what we want them to do, really by force, isn't it? That, that at the, in a nutshell, is what anger is. It's, I don't like what I'm seeing here, and I'm going to fix it right now, and the way I'm going to fix it is using my weapon of anger to intimidate you, to scare you, to shout you down, so that I get you to do what I think you ought to be doing. In other words, there's an enormous arrogance there to say, I know what needs to happen here, and I can make it happen by using fear, by using anger, by using manipulation against you. But what the preacher seems to be indicating here is that true wisdom comes when we open ourselves up to the humble truth that our own perspective in any given situation is very limited, and that often the eventual outcome of it is very different than what I project in my own limited understanding of the situation. And so instead of anger, what is often required is patience, humble, submissive patience through the situation. This type of wisdom turns arrogance into humility and helps us to replace anger with patience. The other way that we often react to things that we don't like happening in our lives is to basically escape the present with nostalgia from the past. And the preacher says it is not the wise person, but the fool 
who complains about the way things are in the present by constantly comparing them to the, quote, good old days. Why? Well, for one thing, our nostalgic memories are often distorted by our discontentment of the present. I think the Israelites illustrated this very powerfully. For 400 years, they cried out to God when they were slaves in Egypt, deliver us, deliver us. We are miserable, God, living here as slaves. When will you rescue your people? So God finally hears their prayers and after 400 years, sends his servant Moses to set them free. And as they are now freed, wandering in the wilderness, heading to the promised land, they start waxing nostalgic about the good old days in Egypt. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 to 6, it's actually not, not 5 through 8, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And over and over again, they said, Let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Cost us nothing? Oh, really? Are you forgetting that one minor little detail that you ate that fish as miserable slaves when you prayed every day for rescue from God for 400 years? But in truth, I think that's the nature of nostalgia, isn't it? Those good old days. You know, usually that kind of nostalgia only arises when we're discontent with the present. And so it ends up actually worsening the situation when we try to live in the past, because it's a very distorted past that we remember, an idealized past that just increases our anger and our discontentment for the present. The other problem with nostalgia is that nostalgia often underestimates what God is doing in the present. There's another story that happened in the history of Israel that's very telling about this whole issue of nostalgia and living for the good old days. Uh, as you know, King Solomon built this awesome temple in Jerusalem. And after he built it, uh, worship happened there for many years until finally because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God punished them and the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and tore the temple to the ground and burned it. And now after years of living in captivity in Babylon, by God's grace, he once again delivered his people and let a remnant of them return back to Jerusalem to rebuild Solomon's temple. So they got all busy rebuilding the temple under the leadership of Ezra. And finally, after a lot of work, the foundation for the new temple was finished. And in order to commemorate that event, they had a party. They all gathered at the foundation of the new temple and they celebrated. But this was an interesting event that happened when they gathered for the celebration. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 11 to 13, it says, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout 
from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What a bizarre scene that unfolded that day. This huge shout going on, but all the young people shouting for joy, and all the old people shouting with wailing and crying. And so the weeping and the celebration all mixed together in one noise. And it's because the older people were thinking, what's there to be happy about? What are these young, naive people all screaming about? And the older people must have been thinking, why even bother with this? This is a joke. This new temple is a joke. It's nothing like Solomon's temple. The best days for Israel are over. It'll never be the same again. You see, what these older people couldn't understand is that although this new temple was not as physically impressive as Solomon's great temple was, what this new temple represented was something truly great because this new temple represented God's continued faithfulness to his people. And it was through that same faithfulness that just a few years later, God would bring the Messiah to walk the very steps, not of Solomon's temple, but of this new temple. In other words, these elderly people had no idea what God still had in store for their future. And so all they could do is cry for the past, for the good old days, and say, it's over, there's no hope. But the message here seems to be, don't ever count out God like that. Don't ever live in the past of the, quote, good old days that used to be. But to have hope that the best days are still ahead, that you never know what God is going to do in your life. In truth, I find myself, the older I get, constantly struggling with that temptation to live in the past thinking about the great Chicago revivals that happened in the 80s when I was a youth group kid and my crazy college days seeing revival exploding everywhere. And sometimes I realize I'm stuck in the past like that too. And it'll never be like those days, will it? And even as I was preparing this message, God was convicting me, you know? What do you think I want to do through ICC? What does God want to do in our midst? And he's saying, you need to believe that the best days, things that you haven't even seen from me yet, are yet to come. Do you believe that? Or do you frankly feel like you've, you've climaxed already? You've seen the best. Now it's just winding down to your grave and just petering out. I realized I needed to seek that faith, to believe, even as I enter middle age, that some of the greatest things that God is going to show me are yet ahead for us. Amen? Let's pray. I argue that in these short few verses in Ecclesiastes 6 to 7, they're actually packed with an incredible amount of wisdom, aren't they? And a lot of it revolves around how we deal with the challenges in life. Learning how to live for the right things by reflecting on our death and our mortality. About treasuring honest rebuke more than empty flattery, about trusting God enough to be patient in difficult times rather than lashing out in anger and trying to get our way because we think we know what's best in any given situation, 
about not escaping to the past, but courageously dealing with the present and trust that God can do far more than we could ever imagine. I think if I were to tie all of this together, it's speaking about a stance of humility and brokenness and trust that understands our limited abilities and our limited vantage point. And so often I think we try to stand in the place of God and try to fix things in our life and try to take matters into our own hands. And in truth, the greatest lessons of life are you are far weaker than you realize. You really are. There's so much that you have so little control over. And you can kick against the goads and fight against that lesson that God is trying to teach you. Or you can humble yourself to that lesson and submit to it and say, I am here to learn. I am here to be corrected. Show me the way, God. Romans 8, 28 is the great promise of God. And we know that for those who love, that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that in your life? I just want to invite you to pray as we continue into this exploration of Ecclesiastes to the wisdom that the preacher is inviting us to. And particular to this message, can I just come back to that issue of rebuke? And I want you to pray about what you heard today, about maybe that last 10%. Maybe that everybody else sees, but you don't see. It's what everybody is thinking, but nobody dares say it to you. And maybe you know right now, if you were to hear that last 10%, you're not in a state of mind where you would be able to deal with it very graciously. In truth, you know it would crush you. It would devastate you if someone were to say something like that to you. And maybe your prayer this morning needs to be, God, I... I want to really believe this gospel message that I'm not defined by my limitations and failures and track record, but by the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. And I want to have that type of foundation so that people could speak into my life and I would actually receive it with joy and thanksgiving as something helpful to me, as a gift. I want you to also think about maybe anger and how you deal with situations that aren't going your way. And maybe what really emerges there is the revelation that you have a lot of pride. You know, that you make these summary judgments about people and about situations, and so you end up acting very rashly to try to get your will, get your way done by force. And what Jesus is saying is, I am so much larger than what you see in any given circumstance. Often the end of a thing is very different than the beginning of a thing. And you need to sometimes learn just to bite your tongue and to just trust me and trust that I am in control of that situation and to replace your anger with patience. And maybe for some of us, we're kind of living in despair and living in the past because we don't really have a lot of hope for the present, let alone the future. And what God is saying is, don't be so quick to judge that either. Don't live in the past. Fools live in the past and create this whole fake history idealized about the good old days that in truth never really existed. What I want to do is about the future. And you don't underestimate what I still have planned for your life and what I want to do in you. The best of days are not over. They are ahead of you. Believe that by faith. 
Can I just invite you to pray about maybe whatever God is convicting you in this message this morning? And let's come before the Lord with that as our worship team gets ready to lead us in a time of response. Let's pray.